0: Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where for 36 years we have engaged the public in reflection and dialogue on the key issues of our day from an ethical perspective. All forums are free and open to the public. Information on upcoming events can be found at WestminsterForum.org. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn as well. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm senior minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church located on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis and moderator of the forum. It's my pleasure to introduce today's guest speaker. Educator, author, media entrepreneur Irshad Manji describes herself as African by birth, Canadian by citizenship, and American by immersion. She's the founder and director of the University of Southern California's Moral Courage Project a worldwide movement equipping people to do the right thing in the face of their fears. Professor Manji came to national attention for her work as an Islamic reformer, and her book, The Trouble with Islam Today, was an international bestseller. She's also the author of the book, Allah, Liberty and Love, The Courage to Reconcile Faith and Freedom. A bold advocate for human rights, for social justice, diversity, and inclusion, she has received awards from numerous organizations, including Ms. Magazine's Feminist for the 21st Century Award, the Global Vision Prize from Immigration Equality, and LGBTQ immigration rights organization, the World Economic Forum's Young Global Leader Award, and the New York Society for Ethical Cultures Ethical Humanist Award. At a time of division and polarization in our nation, she will share her insights in moving from polarization to constructive conversation. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Irshad Manji.
1: That is one heck of a radio voice you got there, Pastor. (laughs) Good afternoon, everybody. Salaam. Shalom. And to the atheists in this crowd, how the hell are you? I swear that's as profane as I'm going to get. Don't you worry about a thing, Pastor, until you have to. Let me jump right into it because I know our time with each other is limited. I was blown away last year when the Pew Research Center, very well respected um, survey organization, released uh, a report in which they reported that almost half of those whom they surveyed who supported hill or who were to have supported Hillary Clinton did not know a single Trump supporter in their lives and similarly a third of those Trump supporters whom they surveyed did not have a close friend who supported Hillary So when we talk about polarization, this is for real. The divide is here. And let me now echo Pastor Tim by wishing you all, in the spirit of feeling the love, a happy Valentine's Day. (laughs) There's a reason I'm saying that at this moment. You see, uh, when my wife Laura and I said our goodbyes last, uh, last night, yeah? Can I help you? Everything good? It's okay, it's okay, but just remember to put your questions down on that note card then when, uh, when the time is right, because I am so interested in hearing from you. Um, when my wife Laura and I said our goodbyes um, yesterday, She said to me, I cannot believe that you are leaving the love of your life on Valentine's. (laughs) And by love of my life, she meant my dog, Lily. (laughs) She did. Lily happens to be blind and is a rescue. And I'm going to explain, in the course of today's talk, why Lily may hold the key to healing our polarization. Now, let me uh, initiate you into a little bit about my story. I know something about us versus them. Because um, I grew up with a lot of prejudice being preached at me, not just being hurled against me. You see, I uh, went every Saturday just outside of Vancouver, British Columbia, to um, an Islamic religious school known as the Madrasa. And that is where I began to ask seemingly simple, but apparently inconvenient questions. Questions like, um, why can't girls lead congregational prayer? After all, sir, I said to my madrasa teacher, um, you've told us that girls mature earlier than boys do, which is why we're expected to fast and pray at a younger age than boys are. So why not reward us for our maturity with these leadership positions? He became very annoyed. And later, I asked him, why are you teaching us that... Muslims cannot take Jews and Christians as friends. I just want to understand. At which point, he promptly expelled me. (laughs) It had been building up to this moment, I assure you. (laughs) My mortified mother, God bless her, did not order me to crawl back to the madrasa and beg for forgiveness. I'm her daughter. She knew that I would not beg for forgiveness. But neither did she write me off. She expected something more of me. And she said to me, Irshad, all I ask is that whatever you decide to do with the Saturdays that you would have spent at the madrasa, she said, please be thoughtful about what you're now going to do. And because she expressed faith in me, I felt a responsibility to her. And so I did think, I didn't just feel, I didn't just emote, I thought. And I decided, okay, I'm gonna own my geekness and I'm gonna do something that, by the way, folks, is profoundly (laughs) pre-Google. I decided every Saturday I would go to the public library and read, and I would read everything I could get my hands on uh, about cultures and religions and belief systems. And um, it was during that time of self-study that I discovered something transformative. Namely, that Islam, my religion, has its own tradition of independent thinking, and questioning, and debating, and dialogue, and yes, reinterpretation. And that tradition, folks, is known as ijtihad, ijtihad. I'm going to spell that for you. Because if you take nothing else away from today's talk, let it be this, I-J-T-I-H-A-D, Ijtihad, Islam's tradition of independent thinking. And what that discovery did for me is it allowed me to see, yes, I can be faithful, and thoughtful at the same time. That I don't have to be divided within myself. I don't have to make a false choice between one or the other. I can have integrity. In other words, I can integrate my love of God with my love of questions. And that served me well for the next many, many years. And then came 9-11. I know that's history for many of you, but some of us actually lived through it. And I realized that discovering Ijtihad had helped me make peace with the fact that I have questions, but it didn't address those questions. And for better or for worse, It was time to address them. I decided to write a book, an open letter to my fellow Muslims asking, why are so many of us silent in the face of grotesque abuses of power that are committed in the name of our beloved faith? And I cited one of my favorite passages from the Holy Quran, a passage that says, God does not change the condition of a people until they change what is inside themselves. So simple, so straightforward, so, so hard. And it seems to me that Americans, of all creeds and no creed, now need to do likewise. We need, well I should say you need, I'm still Canadian. (laughs) Not for long, but I'll savor it while I can. Americans of all creeds now also need to look inside themselves if we're going to change the conditions that we're experiencing today. And by the way, I'm not just talking about conservatives. In fact, maybe more than conservatives, maybe, I'm also talking about my fellow liberals. We need a course correction, I believe, in how we advocate for social justice. Let me explain by sharing another story with you. About three years ago, I was at the University of Virginia in, as it turns out, Appalachia, beautiful folk song. Thank you for sharing that with us. And I was giving a talk on courage. And after the talk, after most of the students had finished engaging with me. A young man named Sam approached me and he said, why is it that the best part of our culture down here in Virginia is never considered worthy enough to be part of multiculturalism? And probably just buying some time, I asked him, what do you mean by the best part? And he said, well, for one thing, down here, when we ask how are you, we mean it. And if you're actually in trouble, if you've got a flat tire, most of us would stop and help. But he said, That's never talked about as part of multiculturalism. Is that because people like you see us as backward white men? He stopped me in my tracks. And because I'm all about thinking and not just emoting, I I then went to a former student who I knew was from Biloxi, Mississippi. She's biracial, she grew up Muslim, she's a hip-hop artist, and she is uh, not given to romanticizing the South. (laughs) And I asked her, is Sam right? Or is he just playing me about, you know, these being parts of Southern culture, like vibrant parts, still living parts of Southern culture? And she said to me, Earshad, he nailed it. That's why, even though I go to school in New York, I love coming home. And those testimonials, not surprisingly, prompted a lot of questions in me. For example, is it ever legitimate to label Sam a racist or a redneck because he wants to celebrate what Southerners can frankly teach a lot more of us? Should we, as forward-looking people, defend the multiculturalism that shuts him out? Does diversity need a rethink in the spirit of Ijtihad? Discussing these questions, my friends, openly, honestly, and without defensiveness will require more of us to build what is called moral courage. And very simply defined, moral courage means doing the right thing when you're afraid to. When you're afraid, for example, of being told by your friends, are you selling out, dude? What What are you doing? Talking to people like that. share with you how I've struggled, how I've wrestled with my own need to build moral courage. Back to the book for a second, The Trouble with Islam Today. So some have said to me, oh, it takes so much courage to write that. No, it didn't. No, it didn't. I live in a relatively free society. I insist on using those freedoms for a greater good. Okay, so you get a few banana peels thrown at you, couple of rotten eggs, a few death threats, but not ones that have ever been acted on. (laughs) You want to talk about the courage to say these kinds of things, we'll talk about it when it comes to reformers in Muslim-majority countries, but not here. It takes persistence. You will die of exhaustion, not extermination. No, my big moral courage moment came when I was being lovingly challenged by non-Muslim kids, young people, who would come to a number of my events, say at colleges, at community centers, And they would say things to me like, Irshad, thank you. Thank you for what you're doing. This is a really important message, obviously. But I'm a Christian, I would hear in the US South. And I can tell you that there is a lot of intolerance in my community. There's more and more of it, as I've noticed, I would be told. I would hear from. Young Jews who would say you want to talk about the rise of dogma? Let me tell you about dogma in my community. I'm critical of the Israeli government. But my parents don't want to hear it. My rabbi sure doesn't want to hear it. And I'm often called a traitor. I would get this even here, back then from young atheists who would say things to me like, you know, it's so weird, Yershad. We atheists, we say that we're all about rationality, but I am noticing a serious hate-on for people of faith. What do I do with that? How do I square rationality, the theory of it, with irrationality, the practice of it. And you know, these are all really thoughtful questions, right? But that's not how my ego heard them. I was already under fire. And through that filter, what my ego heard was, you are denying the validity of my thesis. You're saying that there really isn't trouble in Islam today because, you know, there's trouble among all of us. So I would shoot back, metaphorically. I would, I would come back at these kids and say, really? So there's, you know, there's a lot of doctrine in your community too, huh? Tell me, in what other faith today can you dissent with the mainstream and fear for your life, which I really didn't. I just wanted to challenge them back because I was feeling threatened by their thoughtful questions. And to, most, to their credit, most of them said to me, huh, interesting point, thank you. I, I'm, I'm gonna reflect on that. Now, back to my point, and they would press on. And because they responded calmly to me, over time, I'm a slow study, but I eventually get it, over time, I heard the message that I could lower my emotional defenses and actually get what they were trying to tell me. That if I was going to be an effective advocate for justice, I would need to make my message so much more inclusive. I would need to show them, non-Muslims, how they can be a part, and why they should be a part of this movement for critical thinking. And that's when I grew from just the message of Muslim reform to the message of moral courage, which is universally needed, maybe now more than in any living time in memory. What I struggled with over those years was that my ego was telling me, Irshad, don't ever let anybody see you as questioning yourself. Because if you do, they will pounce on you. They will take that as proof that you don't know what you're talking about, that you're not a real scholar, because of course they are, that you're weak, and that you're easily knocked off off guard. So cling, cleave. To who you want to present yourself as. There's no need to learn from anybody. That was my ego speaking. And it was wrong. Today, many years later, I very rarely get hate mail from a new generation of Muslims. In fact, I would go as far as to say that I'm getting love bombs from young people who are saying, of course we need fresh, open discussion. Why are we in this country if we can't have that? The moment I started to listen, to understand, rather than to win rather than to score points, I became a much more effective communicator of what I really, really stand for. And notice that I found this lesson in the most unlikely of places. You guys, your generation, which doesn't mean you're always right but it does mean you're always worth engaging. All of which brings me back to Lily, my rescue dog, and yes, the love of my life. When Laura and I adopted Lily, she was already blind. You know why? Because she had been terribly abused by her previous human. It could have been prevented, but out of both uh, violence and neglect, Lily lost her sight. And it took more than a year for me to earn her trust. After all, I was one of the bad guys. I was a human. I remember the moment to this day when she rolled over to let me give her a belly rub. It's important, because that is a sign of trust. I'm still waiting for the kisses, though. It's true. I won't romanticize the situation. But I can tell you that it'll be worth my patience. Because unexpectedly, Lily is the only thing, the only entity human or not, who has ever gotten me to slow down, to, uh, to really appreciate the simpler things in life, to get off social media, and to just play. And she reminds me every day that we human beings are not unlike Lily. uh, We're scared, we're vulnerable. We often come from a place of damage, of feeling hurt, of having been wounded. And for that very reason, not in spite of it, but because of it, we have something to teach. And when I say we, I don't just mean women, minorities, people with disabilities, or gay and lesbian folks. I mean all of the above and those who define themselves as conservatives too. My challenge to you this afternoon is pretty straightforward. Can you glimpse Lily in the people whom you treat as the other? And if you can, if you think you can, what are you doing with that? How are you showing it? How are you? healing the polarization in our social fabric. In spirit of Ijtihad and Valentine's Day, I thank you for your hearts and for your ears. And now I look forward to a very robust (laughs) Q&A. God bless you all.
0: Thank you, Irshad Manji. You're listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum broadcast from Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister of Westminster Presbyterian Church and moderator of the forum. Our speaker today is Irshad Manji. While the ushers collect questions from the in-house audience, I'd like to thank our broadcast partner, the statewide network of Minnesota Public Radio News, heard in the Twin Cities at 91.1 FM, and the co-sponsor of today's forum, the online news source, Minpost. We invite you to join us for our next forum on Tuesday, March 20, 21st, at noon, when New York Times columnist Frank Bruni will explore media in the age of misinformation. Look for further information at WestminsterForum.org. And now, Irshad Manji, if would, you would return to the pulpit, I will present the questions from our audience. In your, in your presentation, you spoke of uh, moral courage and called us to find our own source of moral courage. Could you describe, in, in your words, in your own journey in life, how you personally came to a place of being able to, to show the moral courage, particularly say, as coming out in your community, for instance?
1: Right. Um, Well, I'll I'll take that in a slightly different direction, Pastor, because it's not just coming out um, that has been a reason to develop moral courage. It it, it is also, as I mentioned, growing up um, in a society in which I received very conflicting messages uh, from my different schools, one being the public school, which engaged me with dignity, and the other, my uh, so-called religious school, which decidedly did not. And um, I remember, uh, my father was a pretty violent guy, by the way, not because he was Muslim. I will tell you he was very nominally Muslim. I think he was violent because he was raised in uh, in a very... Um, uh, Violent way, and he didn't know anything different. And I remember one night he chased me through the house. I think I was nine years old. He chased me through the house with a knife in his hands, threatening to slice off my ear. And um, I, uh, I'm not stupid. I, I, I beat it. I, you know, I, I flew up to my bedroom um, and through the bedroom window and scrambled up to the roof. And I made a pact with myself that night, Pastor, um, that when I was older. I would not be stuck in the rut below that roof. And that whatever it is I would wind up doing, I would do it not just for myself, but for others who found themselves in a similar um, position. And so it's really out of gratitude for the freedoms that we've got in this part of the world. Not out of bitterness, not out of anger toward injustice, but out of gratitude that you know, my family and I came to this part of the world as refugees, refugees from Uganda. And we were given our, um, you know, our coats, our winter coats, alongside our freedoms. We didn't work for them, we didn't earn them, we didn't shed blood for them, we were given them. And the question I wake up with every morning is, what am I doing today to remind God that I will stay worthy of being gifted these freedoms. That's my source of moral courage. Mm -hmm.
0: And and how how do you suggest some specific ways we, particularly younger people, might cultivate that kind of moral courage?
1: It's it's hard. It's hard work. Um, A lot of people, not just young people, human beings, like to believe that if we say we're going to change ourselves, well, saying it is as good as doing it. In fact, our brains play that trick on us. I remind my students every semester that uh, if you write something down as your hope, your goal, your aspiration, your brain, the way it works is that it will want you to believe that you have already done it. And you've deliberately got to slow down. And yes, take a break from your devices. I'm on a four-month social media cleanse right now. (laughs) I really am. My publisher won't like to hear that, but I am. And I have rarely felt better. Because what that does is it frees me up to actually speak with people, and then listen, and then think, and then ask myself, do I still believe what I came into this conversation believing? It all sounds so nerdy, doesn't it? But I'll tell you, at the end of the day, it'll be those relationships that help you define success and meaning in life. Social media is here today, gone tomorrow. Literally, today's news will be yesterday's news tomorrow. But transformation happens in relationship. And that's why taming the ego is probably the first step.
0: You referred in your remarks to the the change that came into your life with September 11th. Can you explore that a bit more with us and and is that change ongoing still today, some of the years later?
1: Well, I think the change that I experienced is very similar to that experienced by a lot of people in this country, both Muslim and non-Muslim. You know, I would write a fair amount about Islam prior to 9-11. And friends would read my columns and would say, uh, oh, well, you know, that's kind of interesting. Yeah, cool. But really, it has nothing to do with me, right? Because that's what you people over there do. 9-11 woke us up to the fact that politics in a village several thousand miles away will come back to. to affect us, which is why keeping tabs on what our governments do in our name is so vital. Because if you're going to be selling arms, for example, to somebody fighting communism, and having then declared that communism has been defeated, and you don't check on where those arms are, where those guns and those weapons are, don't be surprised if they come back to, to, to haunt you. Um, And therefore, what 9-11 ultimately did, I think, is it woke up many Americans um, to the truth of Martin Luther King Jr.'s point, that we are all bound in a network of mutuality and that we all wear one garment of destiny so that an injustice many miles away becomes a threat to justice right here. And again, a lot of us apply that idea to standing up for people of color. I happen to be one, and I'm you know deeply grateful for that. But I think it's also time. We've learned too much to ignore this, that if we demonize people whom we think or assume or are told have power and who themselves aren't feeling it, then we need to recalibrate uh, how inclusive we're really being. The bottom line is, let us not practice exclusion in the name of inclusion, because it will come back to haunt, as some would say it already has.
0: A number of questions coming forward about Islam and about your own uh, practice of that religion. Would you you describe Islam as a a religion of peace?
1: I would say, like all religions, Islam has a glorious, wonderful theory of peace. Um, In practice, it is imperfectly human. And uh, there are, you know, I'm happy to get into a longer discussion about this uh, after um, our formal session in the sanctuary. But let us remember that saying you belong to any creed or religion is still very different from living up to it. Uh, You know, the US Constitution, Americans love to cite it. And uh, they say that uh, this is a land of liberty and equality for all in practice. We know the reality is different. Uh, feminists, of which I am one, uh, love to claim that you know our vision is one of advancing um, humanity. Uh, less war, less violence. Why is it then that we didn't include pro-life women or anti-choice women, if you will, in the recent women's march the point is that yes Islam can be a religion of peace it has all of the raw materials it is we humans who need to fix ourselves
0: Uh, I dare say that the same thing could be said for the faith that I practice, Christianity.
1: Indeed. In fact, Except you're willing to acknowledge that, Pastor. Yeah. You're willing to acknowledge that, and many people of faith, what I would call people of dogma, in other religions, are not willing to acknowledge that about their faiths.
0: In uh, in your experience of uh, you wrote this book, The Trouble with Islam today. That was now over a decade ago. So that was kind of yesterday. Years ago. Uh, has anything come of that? You, you still have, would you still write the same book today? Do you still have trouble with Islam today? Have there been changes?
1: Well, um, I think that there is still trouble in Islam today and that uh, a large piece of that um, is what we Muslims have to own. But I'm happy to say that, uh, as I alluded in my talk, a new generation of Muslims is speaking up and uh, stepping forward in a way that the previous generation, so steeped in defensiveness about 9-11 and about Islamophobia, uh, has not stepped forward to own uh, a piece of what ails Islam today. So I am actually seeing progress being made. But I will say in my own, um, uh, to to again sort of uh, acknowledge my own limits, I would, I would write everything today that I did 15 years ago, but I would do so from a much more inclusive and inquisitive tone rather than an inquisitional one.
0: Inquisitional, is it a little judgmental, you think?
1: Um, yes, yeah.
0: yes. Uh, we have over, t- for the radio audience, we have over 200 high school students in the sanctuary here at the Town Hall Forum, and, which is great. And a number of the questions coming forward are from the students, thank you for that. Uh, what would you say to uh, non-Muslim students here today that they should know about the, their fellow students who are Muslim?
1: I would, um, I'm, 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 I'm hoping I don't need to uh, emphasize this, uh, this point, but I would ask you uh, to think of them first and foremost as individuals, as complex human beings not as mascots of their religion. Yes, many Muslim students will happily and proudly uh, take the label Muslim, but when you actually speak with them, you find that there's so much more than just Muslim. Um, I think that if we were, all of us as human beings, more willing to get past labels and actually learn about the multiple dimensions of any of us, including so-called white guys, we'd find that every one of us has a story and probably many stories to tell that are directly contradictory to what we had assumed. And it is in those conversations that we learn how much there is to grow.
0: Some of this is pretty difficult, especially when you expose your own vulnerabilities as a minority, perhaps, in a majority context. And you have done that repeatedly in your life. And one of our students send, sends forward this question. How do, you, how do you handle all the negative feedback given to you? And by the way, she says, my name is Lily too. Thank you so much. You're awesome.
1: <laughs> how do you handle
0: the negative that comes at you?
1: So. Um, First things first, Lily, you go, girl, okay? (laughs) The negativity, you know, um, is a reality of life. Uh, Because even as, you know, Christ understood, and believe me, I'm not comparing myself to him, I'm saying that even somebody as uh, elevated in his consciousness as Christ realized that no good deed goes unpunished that you will uh, put yourself out there with your vulnerabilities, and yeah, some people will take advantage of you for that. But let me ask Lily and others this. Would you rather go to bed every night knowing that you have lived up to your capacity to be the best person you know how to be and that you'll get even better at it because of what you're learning about life? Or would you rather have to say to yourself, today, I didn't ask a question. I grew not one one iota. I stayed fixed in what I believe. And I'm going to be uh, defensive towards other people because that's what I expect of them. And I'm not gonna let them take advantage of me. Let me ask you this. What's the bigger source of negativity? Is it your ego that keeps whispering, be afraid, be afraid, be afraid? Or is it your integrity, which actually allows you to reconcile all that you are, and allows you to become even more than you think you're capable of. What's the bigger source of negativity? I'll leave it to you to decide.
0: Your message is great, this one questioner says, but how does this all work when our leaders create fear of others and attempt to polarize and separate us constantly?
1: Don't fall for it. Now, I'm going to say something more that is, you might think is off topic, but I'm going to bring it back to the topic. Um, You know, I could go on and on, as many of you can, about how leaders are so often misleaders, as in they mislead rather than actually lead. But I will tell you that this happens even at what one might term progressive colleges. It happens among social activists, too. For example, Um, I had a couple of students come to me uh, when I was teaching at New York University a few years ago. Well, actually, only about two years ago. And uh, they were two young African-American guys. And they said to me, Professor, you teach moral courage. We need some advice. Um, We're part of the Black Lives Matter movement. And uh, we both believe that in order to understand why police do what they do, what's going through their hearts and their minds when they pull a trigger or they do a takedown. We really believe that we need to sit down and hear them, listen to what their fears are. Um, And they said, you know, it's so interesting that feminists um, often point out that the movement really didn't get anywhere until they started recognizing that they need the buy-in of men. Because that's how you address a problem, not just by preaching to the choir, but by bringing in new folks. And they said to me, the problem is that whenever we raise this as a possibility within our uh, part of the movement, we're called sellouts. We're called Uncle Toms. We're called house niggers. That's what they're called by others in the Black Lives Matter movement. And so they asked me, what do we do? Do we go with our conscience and just meet with police and hopefully gain some insight? Or do we stay away and be able to claim, therefore, that we have betrayed nobody. And I ask them what I'm asking you. Do you belong to this particular movement? You say it's about black lives mattering, but your voices are those of young black men. Therefore, your voice matters too. And apparently, it's being dismissed. So ask yourself, will you stay true to your conscience and your curiosity and your inclusiveness? Or will you do what you do in order to go along with the crowd? That pastor is also part of the misleading that is going on today. And it's hard to hear. I offer up that story with hope that instead of taking it as a wound to our identity, we will take it as an opportunity to develop our integrity.
0: Thank you very much for that response. We have time for one more question. And you, you seem to be a person Full of hope, in spite of the context in which we all are living, and your own personal story. Uh, How do we hang on to that hope in the in the winds that are blowing, the storm that is raging around us right now in America? How do you find hope in that?
1: Well, I find hope really, and I'll repeat myself just a little bit by um, yanking myself out of the noise. Uh, Laura and I watched the news, dare I say it, religiously, during the election campaign. (laughs) Today, uh, I'm almost uh, at the point where I'm convincing her to cut the cord, to um, just stop subscribing to cable, because we never watch it. It's an intentional effort on our part to get rid of the noise. I mentioned that uh, I've been fasting when it comes to social media for the last four months. I haven't convinced Laura to get off Facebook yet, but my contribution to helping her get there is that um, we're just not going to talk uh, every night about you know the latest outrage um, that she finds on Facebook about the Trump administration. Where you find hope is in leaning in to where other human beings are. I don't know if many of us can appreciate right now what listening does, but it has actual bodily implications. Listening to understand not to score points, literally allows us to take deeper breaths. It allows us to just be. And in that way, in that relaxed way, it allows us to ask ourselves, what am I here to do? How do I want to grow? What is my hope? And how do I get there? Because when we listen to the other, your other, not society's other, your other, when you listen to understand, they're also going to be asking the same things about themselves. And it's only in seeing that you are in a relationship where you know you're not alone, that you'll be able to see where to from here. Uh, It's not as heart-stirring as morally-hardened combat, but mimicking a problem, namely combat, never does much to solving a problem. Stop mimicking. Be original. Be countercultural. Listen.
0: Thank you, Irshad Manji.